0: Some of my most memorable moments in both college and seminary were times of prayer. And I remember when I was a a student in the School of Christianity at Howard Payne University, oftentimes the ministerial students would gather in various places, various churches, for times of pretty intense worship and prayer. And we would pray for revival to break out in our school. And although it was a Southern Baptist school, it needed the Lord pretty desperately and uh, we were praying for revival to happen in our city as well and i can i can still see the tears that would be flowing down the face of these ministerial students i can still i can still feel the passion that was reverberating and pulsating as we prayed and i can still hear in my mind uh, the confession of sin and uh, commitment to repentance that took place and those were some really really sweet moments and having gone to a Baptist school and gone to a Baptist seminary, my wife and I are both graduates here. of here, uh, we had uh, times of prayer where professors would pray for us that would be very memorable as well. I can remember uh, our New Testament professors, always our New Testament professors, prayed with such grace. And uh, all the Old Testament professors, they, they prayed for judgment. That's what they prayed for. Just kidding, there. But I still remember Dr. Frankie Rainey as he would pray. Uh, we would be so encouraged when he prayed, and we would we would just feel the love of Jesus over us, and we would feel the grace of God just flowing. And then we had a practical theology professor, Dr. Shields. He was the lone Calvinist at our school, and uh, we hated it when he prayed because when he prayed for midterms and finals in particular, there was no emotion when he prayed, and there was no grace. It was just stone-cold, hard truth. And he prayed this before every, sem- uh, every final, before every midterm. Dear God, help these students to do as well as they prepared. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's a horrible prayer. I wanted him to pray something like this, all gracious, omnipotent Father, you know all things. These students don't know much. <laughs> I pray miraculously that they would know facts that they did not study, and they would recall things that they have long since forgotten in the wonderful, glorious name of Jesus, amen. Wanted him to pray that, but he never did. Well, today, we're going to pray, or we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about a prayer that was prayed by the Apostle Paul. And it's one of his two prayers that he found in his letter to the Ephesians. And what I'm hoping will take place is this, is that you will be willing to do something that maybe is a bit of a stretch for you. And I don't mean that as any kind of judgment, but maybe it's been a while for you to simply be receptive to this prayer. I want you to receive what this prayer is all about as if you and I really need it because we desperately do. And why would I even say that? Well, the reason I would say it is this. There was a time... More than once, when I have talked to individuals and say, hey, would it be okay if I prayed for you? And their response was, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. I mean, are you so good that you don't need prayer? Hope not. Hope that there's always room in your life to receive a prayer. There are other occasions after a weekend service, uh, On occasion, people have come down to me in the front of the worship center and said, Pastor, can I pray over you? And the service is already over with. And I'm thinking, dear Jesus, was my sermon that bad? Are they needing to pray that I will somehow be encouraged because I did such a poor job? And then the reason I'm saying it as well is because too many times, in particular, When my wife has asked me if I would pray with her and allow her to pray over me, I have said, I don't have time right now. I got to get out the door or I'm too busy. If you are too busy to have somebody pray over you, you're too busy. So we're going to look at Paul's prayer found in Ephesians. And this is my only ask. I only have one ask today. Will you, right now, ask God to give you a spirit of receptivity to his word? That's all I ask you to do. Just pray, God, give me a spirit of receptivity. So, we're going to talk in a life-changing prayer, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. For this reason, and we'll talk about the reason in a moment, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through His Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So as we work through this prayer, my prayer is that it will work its way into us and we're going to do this. We're going to explore the motivation of the prayer, the posture of the prayer, and the content of the prayer. And so here's the big idea. Followers of Jesus are strengthened by the Holy Spirit so they experientially grasp God's love and are filled with His fullness. I'll say it one more time. Followers of Jesus are strengthened by the Holy Spirit, so they experientially grasp God's love and are filled with His fullness. And the key word is experientially. This prayer is to be experienced. That's the thrust of this prayer that Paul is praying over these believers in Ephesus and that we can receive today. So, all that being said, let's investigate the motivation for his prayer. It begins with these words. For this reason. Well, what's the reason, Paul? Well, these are actually the same words that you'll find in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul said, for this reason, and then he interrupted himself and, and started talking about the mystery of the gospel and the fact that the Gentiles were included. So he begins this prayer, and then he digresses. Have you ever noticed how prayer can easily get interrupted? Am I the only one here who knows that? This would be an opportunity for you to say, yeah, pastor. Okay. Have you ever noticed? I'm going to try this again. We do this at our church just to see if people are still awake. Have you ever noticed that your prayers can be interrupted? Very good. Thank you, class. They can be interrupted by children. They can be interrupted by cell phones. Hopefully no cell phones are going to go off in, in here staff, and, uh, and can get interrupted by emergencies. When Karen and I pray in the morning before I head off to work, oftentimes our prayer is interrupted by our dogs, Samson and Lucy, especially Lucy. She is a demon-possessed Scottish terrorist, I mean Scottish terrier, and they often are barking at stuff that we have no idea what it is. But sometimes our prayers get interrupted by our own thoughts right? This is what was happening with Paul as, as he was progressing through this great doctrinal section of the third chapter of Ephesians. He, he interrupted. He started off and then paused, digressed, and then started up again. And if you were to go, okay, what was the reason behind the, Paul's prayer? What was the motivation? Well, you have to go back to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where Paul is talking about The nearness of God, the peace of God that followers of Jesus experience, the access that we have to the Father, and how God is making himself a new people of both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says, because of all of this, I am motivated to pray that you will have an even greater awareness and experience of God's provisions for your life. What is your motivation for praying? When you pray, oftentimes our motivations have to do with the circumstances and need in other people's lives, right? Right now, almost every day, I'm praying for Cindy, our neighbor, who was diagnosed with rapid cancer and been praying for her almost every day. Every day at one o'clock, I get a reminder on my cell phone to pray for a relative of mine who has walked away from Jesus. And I pray that they will return back to their first love. I've got friends that are struggling with some financial issues, and so I I pray for them. My motivation to pray is often based upon the circumstances that others are in. I don't know that Paul is necessarily praying because the Ephesians had uh, problems as much as he is praying over them because he is captivated by who God is, by God's power, and by God's love. It's worth noting that Paul's motivation to pray a bold prayer was not dampened by his circumstances. Paul was not free whenever he was writing this letter to the Ephesians, but his spirit was free. He might have been confined and not had the liberty to do what he once did, but his spirit and his praying was certainly not confined. As a matter of fact, one of the things I noticed is some of the most life-changing the most life-changing words come out of some of the most life-taking circumstances. For instance, 17th century, John Bunyan in prison for 12 years, and yet in the midst of all of that, produced a great masterpiece known as Pilgrim's Progress. Martin Luther King Jr., incarcerated in a jail, wrote letters from a Birmingham jail. Paul, while no longer able to do what he once did with the freedom that he once had, did not let his circumstances keep him from praying bold prayers. His circumstances became the catalyst for incredibly bold prayers. I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what it is that you're struggling with, but what if you looked at that as a catalyst to not pray cautious prayers, but as a catalyst and a motivation to pray a great prayer. Are you motivated to pray? When I wrote that question down, I thought to myself, well, I'm talking to college students and seminarians at a Christian, at a Baptist school. Certainly that you're motivated to pray. But I'm going to say this, having been doing this for over 40 years now, you can actually engage in doing God's work without awareness of god's presence or dependence on god's help believe me it can be done i would not recommend it i would not recommend it are you motivated to pray and this isn't guilt laden this is just asking us are we willing to receive the challenge are we willing to live into this prayer charles spurgeon said this and i said i think he said it well We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. So we've looked at the motivation behind the prayer. Now let's look at the posture of prayer. Verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the father. Only time in Paul's writings that he talks about actually kneeling in prayer. Uh, Maybe the the more typical way that they would pray in those days is they would would pray standing up with their eyes lifted towards heaven. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says, um, when you are standing in prayer, because that was the common thing. Now, in the Old Testament, people did kneel when they prayed. People were, you know, laid down on the ground before the Lord. Daniel knelt by his window three times as a daily testimony to his faithfulness and dependence upon God. The point isn't if you're going to be a real prayer, a real pleader that you need to get on your knees. Physically, the point is this. We had better be kneeling inwardly when we are talking with the Lord. Kneeling is this expression of great Intensity. Paul is feeling the intensity of not only God's glory, but what he wanted for the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. For Paul, prayer was the battle. It wasn't preparation for the battle. It was the battle. It was the spiritual warfare that he engaged in. And so he went in it with a degree of intensity. It was a struggle for him. Intercession was a fight for him. Kneeling, kneeling was also a posture of humility, a posture of submission, a posture of reverence. And so Paul says, when I consider the majesty of God's worldwide work of redemption, when I consider the mystery of who all God would include in this, my only appropriate response is humble adoration and awe. Let me tell you something that I have experienced and that I have feared for you, especially the professors in a school like this. You can handle the holy so much that you lose the mystery and the awe of it, it can become just another concept. And students, I say that to you as well. If you get engaged in ministry, you can become so enamored and so focused on strategy and the organization and all of the things required to do ministry that you simply lose the wonder of it all. And there's not humble adoration. There is, this is what I can do. Paul bowed his knees in humble adoration. That's a life-changing prayer. If I'm praying with a spirit inwardly that is submissive to God, that my prior answer to whatever he requests is, yes, just tell me when. And I don't think it would be a stretch to say that Paul's posture of kneeling was informed by his theology. If you look at verses 14 through 17 again, let me emphasize some things so that you see this. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul bows his knees to the one true triune God who is omnipotent over all creation. No one or no thing can prevent God from supernaturally strengthening us through the empowering of the Spirit and through our faith relationship with the indwelling Christ. Paul's prayer is marked by Trinitarian theology. He prays theologically in the best sense. It's biblically informed, it's meaty, it's practical, it's focused on life change. A theology with any conviction at all should lovingly draw us into the presence of our great God. Theology is not merely talk about God. Theology is entrance into conversation with God. Proper theology leads to powerful praying. Improper theology produces impotent prayers. It was A.W. Tozer who said that your view of God is the most important thing about you. And I might modify that a bit and say this. Your view of God is the most important element of your praying. We've looked at the motivation. We've looked at the content I'm going to go very quickly uh, at the posture. I'm going to go very quickly and look at the content of the prayer. content of the prayer is life-changing. There are three requests. They are linked together like links of a change, one leading into the other. They're all dependent upon each other. The first request in this life-changing prayer is that we would be strengthened by the power of the Spirit. I pray, verse 16 that He may grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through His Spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The glory of God is the manifestation of who He is in His brilliance, in His majesty, in His holiness, in His power. The idea here, the idea here is that God possesses extraordinary, limitless power which He is able and desirous to impart to us. Sometimes, sometimes our prayers sound like they come out of the diary of the wimpy kid. They're just wimpy prayers. They lack, they lack boldness. And could it be that sometimes the reason our prayers lack a little bit of boldness is because we have failed to remember all the resources that God has at his disposal to answer our prayers. I mean, when I listen to some of the prayers I have prayed, I wonder if I actually believe God has what it takes to pull off being God. When we pray that God to the God who gives according to his riches instead of the God who gives out of his riches, we can anticipate something great is going to transpire. If, Eli, if Elon Musk were to give me a hundred dollars, he would be giving me a hundred dollars out of his riches. If he gave me a million dollars, he would be giving me according to his riches. God has inexhaustible resources. He has a well that will never run dry. God is a God of abundance. And his wealth is enough to give you whatever power you need to do what he's asked you to do. If you need power to resist the evil one, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you need to rid yourself of sinful patterns of behavior, you have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, you live, but it's not Christ, but it's not you, but it's Christ who lives in you. When you want to express the virtues of Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you, producing the virtues and the fruit of the Spirit of God. If you need the power to live together with people in the church, hello, reminds me of this phrase, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be glory, but to dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. You're going to feel that and experience that in the life of the church. If you need power to be able to get along with people and lead well, Jesus Christ gives you the power to do so. Whenever I consider all the possibilities God places before you and God places before me to bring Him glory and to do His will, I recognize I need to pray that God will make my capacity equal to His opportunities, and He will. And the way that He goes about doing that is He strengthens us through the indwelling Christ. By the Spirit's work, Jesus takes up residence in our lives. And Paul prays that we will be a people in whom Christ feels fully at home. Robert Munger, a number of years ago, wrote a little booklet called My Heart, Christ, Home. And in this allegory, he moves from room to room considering what Christ desires in every room. So, for instance, in the living room, that's the place where we prepare to meet Christ daily. In the dining room, that's the place where we examine what appetites should or should not be controlling us. And then he even explores the closets of our lives that Christ can help us clean out. And it's almost as if what Paul is praying here is that he's praying for the ongoing sanctification of Christ, the ongoing sanctification of the believer in Christ. He's wanting us to move from just believing that Christ is present, but asking Christ to become prominent and preeminent. You are not the Airbnb of Jesus. You are the permanent home of the indwelling Christ. And He wants every single room of your life opened to Him, that He can come in and graciously fill and dwell. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the temporary dwelling place of God during the wilderness. In the New Covenant, you. You are the permanent home of Christ so that wherever you are, Jesus Christ is, and that should strengthen us. Second request in this life-changing prayer is to be grounded in the love of God. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know Christ love that surpasses knowledge. Paul uses some horticultural and, agri- and architectural terms. He wants us to be rooted in the love of Christ. Just like a tree needs to be rooted deep in the ground to get nourishment and have stability. You and I need to be deeply rooted in the love of Christ in order for our lives to be stabilized. To be firmly established is is an architectural term talking about a foundation. Foundation is the most important part of this particular building right here. The only way that you can go up is that you have to go down deep. If you want your life to ascend in the ways of Christ, make sure that you are deeply rooted in the love of Jesus. And Paul prays for us to have our lives so firmly grounded and growing in the love of Christ that we're able that we're able to grasp in some capacity, if just some minuscule little bit, the immeasurable and unfathomable love of Christ for His own. When when I read about this, knowing the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, the thing and the image that comes to mind is, is the cross. The love of Christ is is broad enough to encompass all different kinds of people. It's long enough to last from here through eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most broken and depraved sinner like me. And it's high enough to exalt us to heaven itself. Paul prays that we will grasp and apprehend this love. So here it is. Will you experience its breath? Will you test its length? Will you dive down to its depths? Will you ascend the heights of Christ's love? And Paul prays an oxymoronic prayer when he prays, I want you to know a love that surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I'm praying that you will know by experience what you can't know crazy. In essence, you and I can know a measure of Christ's love, but we will never ever exhaust it completely. No matter how much you learn, no, much, no matter how much you think you know or feel or grasp, there is always more, infinitely more to know because our God is so incredibly powerful vast and majestic and beyond completely figuring out. At this point, don't you just want to say amen? Don't you just want to say, oh my, that there is a God who is limitless, who is boundless, and yet he's saying, I want you to know that you can apprehend at least a degree of the amount of love that I have for you, and I want you to comprehend and apprehend this with all the saints. Our experience of Christ's love is personal, but it's not private. It's meant to be felt and proclaimed and enjoyed within the context of the body of Christ. When I first came to seminary, I thought, All I needed was Jesus, my Bible, and me. And I realized really quickly that there is so much more that God has in store for us and that I can't fully even grasp the love of God without connection with brothers and sisters in the faith. We need each other. Jew and Gentile. Men and women. Kansans and Missourians, Jayhawks and Tigers. We need young and old. We need people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation in order to have our understanding of God's love expanded. Do you know that you are loved by God? Do you believe that God is crazy about you? When God looks at you, do you believe that he smiles? I came from a family that did not express love by means of hugging or by even saying the words, I love you. My father told me after his dad died that he was 64 years old before his father ever said, I love you. And so that allowed me to kind of give my dad some grace because that was never said to us either. And so I'm just giving you a confession. Part of my journey as a follower of Jesus, which started as a Catholic boy at the age of 18, has been an ongoing journey to try and understand and and apprehend the love of God for me that's personal. I can say that God is friend, but it's taken me a longer time to be able to embrace the fact that God is Father and to be able to understand what does it mean to be loved by this Father. And maybe there are others of you that experience that as well. And so, the prayer is that, that you will allow yourself with a spirit of receptivity to actually believe that you are loved by God, not based upon your performance, but based upon the work of Jesus Christ, not based upon your striving for perfection, but for, because of the perfection of Christ's work on the cross for you. Five minutes and I'm done. Third request in this life-changing prayer is to be filled with the fullness of God. I love how the Amplified Bible treats this. It says that you may be filled up throughout your being to all the fullness of God so that you may have the richest experience of God's presence in your life, completely filled and flooded with God himself. How can you be filled with the fullness of God? Doesn't that sound like it's Crazy, impossible, it would be like taking an F-16 jet engine and putting it on a skateboard. It'd blow the skateboard up. To be filled with the essence of God is impossible. It would blow us up. So what is Paul praying? Paul is praying, I think, that we would be filled with the fullness of Jesus because the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus in bodily form. He's praying that Christ followers will know personally and powerfully and practically the reality of Christ living in them so that you are so filled with Jesus you don't look for cheap substitutes and lesser affections to give your life satisfaction because they can't and because they won't your soul and mind abhors a vacuum, and we will seek something to fill vacuous spaces in our soul. They can be good things. They can be sinful things, but anything or anyone other than Christ will always leave you empty. Only He can satisfy. So how can this life-changing prayer be life-changing for you? Three points of application. Number one, Will you receive God's strength in your life today? Don't let it be up here. Don't let it be stuck in here. Let it be appropriated in here. Number two, will you remember that you are deeply and radically loved? And number three, will you? seek His fullness rather than a cheap substitute. I want you to stand for a benediction. After Paul prayed some substantial theology over the Ephesians, he broke out in enraptured doxology. And he prayed this, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all we ask or think according to his power that is in work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations and God's people all said, amen.